Support for Cold Case Crime Cuts comes from Angles Instead. Angles Instead provides bespoke website security testing plinths and platform streamlining solutions across the full sector. They offer free entry-level hack explanations to all prospective clients, regardless of their initial blended click base or footprint. Angles Instead is led by world-renowned computer analysts and data limbs, designed by them for both overheads and interfaces. Visit anglesinstead.angles.com cuts to start your free trial, and use the offer code CCASECRIMEC to get a percentage off a full biannual subscription internationally to either device. This podcast episode is sponsored by Antoine Scarville, 1088 DuPont Avenue, Toledo, Ohio, 436122. He knows why. From our studios in Lollapalooza, New York City, I'm Mason Lane, and this is Cold Case Crime Cuts. Undusting lost stories, unshutting their pages, unveiling their words, revealing those stories, and telling those stories. Stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them, wherever you get your songs. Maybe before you listen to this. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is an adjunct of NAR, National American Radio, in close proximity to the Surface to Air Sound Collective and Great Britain's Soluble Radio. They are no longer on Twitter or Instagram. They are very sorry, and they will be relaunching early next year under new management. Episode 4. Episode 4. Who shot the sheriff? Qui a tiré sur le sheriff? Before we start this episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts, I just want to take this opportunity right off the bat to acknowledge the incredible work of our colleagues at Quebec Radio CFN 54 and their investigative podcast, Only God and the Sounds Are Left Alive. Those guys were so helpful with putting together this episode, finding documents, obtaining papers, interviewing a man, and so on. This one's been a real collaborative effort. Thanks to Daniel Pettit and Adrian Villeneuve and everyone up there in Montreal, which I'm sure is a wonderful city, easily one of the top five in the country. From me, Mason Lane, and the whole team here at NAR National American Radio, we send them our full gratitude. And we are delighted to announce that this episode is being co-produced and issued simultaneously as our episode number four and their episode number 988. Do find them online at qrcfn54.fr.ca. And do please give their wonderful back catalog your entire ear. I know that they'd really appreciate that. Alors, considérons l'un des exemples les plus. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah, hi. Yeah. What's your emergency? Hi. Is there an emergency, sir? Yeah, there's a guy. I think I recognize him. Uh, he's got a gun. Are you injured, sir? Huh? Are you hurt? Oh, no. There's a guy with a gun. He was walking up the road, and then the sheriff drove up. Are there shots fired? Yeah, there were. Okay, sir. I, uh, I, I think he shot the sheriff. Can you tell me where you are? Sir, where are you? I'm on the phone. The man in that phone call was Junior J. Braithwaite Jr., and what he said was true. He was on the phone. I'm Mason Lane. This episode of Cold Case Crime Cuts examines an almost 20-year-old tangled basket of unhappy workplaces, anger-filled individuals, and unfortunate deputies. A sorried saga that exposed the rotten inner workings of North American law enforcement to its outer doors. It's a case marked by frustrating inconsistencies everywhere you look, even if you're not looking for them, which we weren't before we started examining the case. There's an inconsistent witness report, inconsistent definitions of terms like self-defense and guilty, all obtained from inconsistent and potentially prejudiced dictionaries. And even the identity and quantity of the victim or victims, him or themselves, is at the mercy of inconsistency. It's nothing if not a consistent pattern. What Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. saw that afternoon was merely a snapshot. A shooting of a sheriff, yes, but a snapshot of something deeper, 
a snapshot, a snapshoot. He just saw the snapshooting of a sheriff. But what he didn't see that afternoon was the build-up to that afternoon, a campaign of petty, small-town vindictiveness and revenge that eventually spiraled out of control down a double-murder helter-skelter. Nor did he see the aftermath, which came later. In this cold case, a 25-year-old man, Bob Whaler, was found guilty of killing a deputy, a charge he always denied. Yet, he had already confessed to murdering the sheriff himself, or herself. Himself. But had also claimed that it was in self-defense. Bob Whaler was sentenced to two complimentary life sentences and is currently incarcerated in Puckruckaruck State Penitentiary, where he maintains both a small vegetable garden and his innocence. As a result of fresh evidence that has only recently been uncovered, hence its freshness, Cold Case Crime Cuts, marshaled by me, Mason Lane, is going to rewarm the embers of this case and examine if Whaler is partly or more innocent of at least one of these deaths, and by how much. And we'll find out if it would make any difference at all if a prisoner were to have one life sentence slightly reduced while serving the entirety of another one. So, what do we know? It's a question that needs narrowing out, so specifically, what do we know about this case? There's a dead sheriff, he's called John Brown, and we know that Whaler shot Sheriff John Brown, claiming self-defense after starting out of town, following the mysterious death of the sheriff's deputy, whose name remains frustratingly irrelevant. Supposedly, Sheriff Brown believed that Whaler had killed the deputy and wanted to track him down, presumably to bring him in for questioning. But Junior J. Braithwaite Jr.'s 911 call seems to suggest that the sheriff ambushed Whaler on his way out of town and was aiming to shoot him down, which suggests that he may have been more interested in firing bullets at him on a road than firing questions at him in a question room. I, uh, I, I think he shot the sheriff. That call is the only first-hand witness account of the final moments of Sheriff John Brown the final moments in which he was alive. After these moments, he was less so. But who and what exactly was this shooting taking place? And Sheriff Brown, where was this exactly? Who even is about to be speaking? Yeah, you just keep on that road about half a mile up that way and you're in Canada. This is Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. now. He's lived on the edge of the little town of Fort Roberts in northern Maine for every one of his 57 years. His hair, so full and luscious on that earlier phone call, is now gray and thinning. In his lifetime, he's seen Fort Roberts change out of and back into all recognition. So it's now very much the same as it was 20 years ago, when Sheriff John Brown was shot down. Fort Roberts is still a quiet town. I mean, it's just built along the one road. That's pretty much all of it down there. According to our Canadian podcast colleagues who are collaborating with us to conduct this interview on our behalf, at this exact moment, Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. is pointing to his left. Nothing too unusual, you might think but they also inform us that less than a minute earlier, he had pointed to his left to indicate the direction of Canada, supposedly in the exact opposite direction to his hometown, the town that Thomas started out of before being confronted by the sheriff. This seems strangely inconsistent. After a lengthy email exchange, we discover that in the gap between talking about the Canadian border and talking about his hometown of Fort Roberts, Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. had actually shifted his entire body some 180 degrees so that he wasn't facing directly into the wind. So, there is an explanation. Same hand, different orientation. Still, this is an early indication that in the town of Fort Roberts, stories, like people's stances when facing the wind, can change. It's not the only inconsistency in his story either, as Junior claims to remember the events of 20 years ago, like they were yesterday. Like they was yesterday. Like they were yesterday. But even a brief glance at a calendar is enough to confirm that 20 years ago isn't yesterday. 
Add to this his inconsistent pointing and standing, and it becomes clear that we need to approach Junior J. Braithwaite Jr.'s testimony with caution, which we will do, but not yet. So this kid Bob Whaler ran a garden center in Fort Roberts. Tildina Farkfarkmerson is a former deputy in the Palmer County Sheriff's Office in Maine, but for clarity, she is not the deputy who was shot and killed. Instead, she's a deputy who's made the trip to our New York studios to speak to me in person, as I wanted to see for myself which way she might point. I asked her to tell me more about Bob Whaler, the shooter of the sheriff, but not, according to him at least, the dead deputy. I asked her to give me a summary of the man, to help me maybe make some kind of connection between him and the victims. She tells me he was the manager of a nursery. For more clarity, the plant kind, not the kid kind. So he started out as a trainee, then he did a few weekend shifts, and he worked his way up until he was the manager. How long did that take? The summary? About 10 seconds. Was Whaler good at his job? I guess so. You'd see him pruning and repotting things, keeping the displays fresh, planting seeds, that kind of thing. But by all accounts, and certainly Tildina's, Bob Whaler's floral presentations attracted the attention of an unlikely source. A source of anger, with a badge. I didn't ride with Sheriff Brown often, but I was in the car with him one day going through Fort Roberts. We passed the garden center and there's Bob Whaler out front, planting seeds. And Brown suddenly pulls over, runs across, and starts kicking all the flower beds, throwing the topsoil around, shooting the plants, killing things before they could grow. It was like, it was like a raid or something. He was so angry. I, I didn't know why he hated him. I didn't know what to do. I just sat there. You sat where? In the car. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were pointing at that chair. No. So what we seem to have is evidence of a sheriff, John Brown, committing unprovoked assaults on a man's, Bob Whaler's, garden center seats. I know, sounds unlikely, right? But there are witnesses. Witnesses to the sheriff seemingly determined to kill all of the seeds before anything could grow. Seeds can really grow up. All sorts of things. Earl Lindo is the assistant manager of Spring-Loaded Flowers and Patios, the largest garden center in northern Maine. Like Tildina, he has made the 1,300-mile round trip to NAR's New York studio, but they traveled in separate cars at separate times. As a gardening professional, in my experience, seeds can become plants, trees, vegetables. Basically, most things you might see growing from patches of earth or compost. That's very much a present-day idea of seeds, though, isn't it? Sheriff Brown and his deputy were killed 20 years ago. Yep, that, that, that's true enough. So I guess my question is, historically, what would seeds represent? I mean, 20 years ago, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago even. Yeah. We've even got seeds mentioned in the Bible. I take out a copy of the Bible and show it to him. Sure. Well, as a gardening professional, uh, my understanding is that most of the biblical mentions of seed are about human sperm. I've never read the Bible, but I'm not sure that's true. That said, I appreciate Earl's honesty, and he drives back to Maine immediately. But though we have no evidence that Sheriff Brown's hatred of Bob Whaler's seeds did not extend further than the horticultural kind, the question remains as to why he went out of his way to ruin Bob's humble garden center displays. How does a simple soil boy attract the organic fury of a sheriff in the first place? It's time I found out about the supposed villain of this story, aside from the man who killed one, possibly two people. The sheriff was certainly a nasty piece of work. Pierre told Booth Gagnon of the Quebec City Court Journal. He's a typical reporter, middle-aged, grizzled, hard-bitten, by what he won't say. He's surrounded by a permanent fug of cigarette smoke, the result of a lifetime of being intimately involved with cigarettes. He was a bully. Uh, he seemed to dislike his deputies, and they did not like him either. 
Also, I would say he had a reputation for shooting a lot of things. I asked Pierre about Sheriff John Brown's background. Well, uh, Jean Brun... John Brown. Uh, Jean Brun was actually born in Quebec, uh, just a few miles from the American border. Uh, his father was American, and he had also been a sheriff, but was removed from office after accidentally shooting a deputy in the face several times. It seems that a pattern is emerging, and Pierre is embroidering it. But despite that, Jean... Jean. He, okay becomes a sheriff as well. And all the reports say that he had a similar temper and similar accuracy. It's not exactly out of the ordinary in modern-day America for a sheriff to be dangerously unstable and trigger-happy. But to suddenly start pulling seeds out of the ground over and over again and stamping on them with bullets? That's harder to swallow. I'm convinced that there has to be a reason for Sheriff John Brown's plant rage. Some link that Bob Whaler's defense lawyers and state prosecutors missed 20 years ago. But after a week of fruitless internet research, I feel like I'm coming up struck out. In desperation, I go back to talk to Pierre once more, and he suddenly throws this curveball straight across the table. Of course, you knew about his father. You said he was removed from office. Yes, and then he opened a garden center. This could be the breakthrough. It seems Sheriff John Brown's family also ran a garden center, and not just any garden center, a different garden center nearby. And the bullying Sheriff Brown was, thanks to his sheriffship, in an ideal position to stomp and shoot down on the competition. It seems that we, and especially me, may be getting somewhere in this case. And we'll get further with it in part two, after this break. What would you do if there was nothing left that you could do? Oh. How would you like to find out? Targeted Strike Plan. All episodes streaming now on Chim Chimney Plus. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. He was the sheriff. His word was the law. It's 20 years in the past back then. Sheriff John Brown is terrorizing the manager of a garden center in northern Maine, killing his seeds before they grow and generally making it clear that he hates him. The manager, 25-year-old father of none, Bob Whaler, would later be charged with the shooting of the sheriff, but would claim self, one of the worst kinds of defense. He would also be charged with the murder of the sheriff's deputy, something he categorically and unagorically denied. We now know that the sheriff's family ran a rival garden center on the other side of town, the two locations separated only by the town between them. Sheriff Brown, it seems, has taken it upon himself to put his family's interests first. And although vandalism and destruction of private property are treated as crimes nowadays, 20 years ago, who knows? I'm Mason Lane, and I know. It's unclear. But what of Sheriff Brown's deputy, the one whose name remains slightly out of relevance and who Bob Whaler swears he didn't shoot? 
I only worked in the sheriff's office for a few months, and that was enough. I managed to avoid him mostly, but some weren't as lucky. Remember Tildina Farkfarkmerson, a former deputy under Sheriff Brown? Well, she's also the owner of an eight-year-old Toyota Camry. It's a good car, even with an extra 1,300 round-trip miles on the clock. Brown liked shooting at things. Animals, flowers, clouds, light switches, you know, that sort of thing. He was definitely trigger-happy. And a deputy who worked with them for any length of time would, uh, uh, you know, there'd be a bit of collateral damage, let's say. As Tildina says, let's say that. I ask her if she herself was ever collateral by Sheriff Brown. Yeah, the few times. Nothing too bad. One through the foot, one in the earlobe. I can clearly see Tildina pointing to her right ear with her right hand. And my decision to make her come to New York City and be interviewed in this studio is completely vindicated. National American Radio. I mean, it was never a good shot. And it's not like he had any superiors around in the office to tell him to go away and get better. We all just got used to ducking out of the way. He was the sheriff. His word was the law. And if he wanted to kill some seeds at a garden center, well, that was the law too. So what actually happened to the deputy? Not Tildina. She's fine, apart from a limp and a sore ear. The dead deputy. What happened to him that made him so dead? He'd only been with us for uh, about six weeks, I guess. Uh, Just to be clear... Were these six weeks one after another, or six weeks dotted all over the calendar? Six weeks one after another, yeah. That's over a month of weeks. Well, there you go. Junior Jay Braithwaite Jr., a long-term resident of the border town of Fort Roberts. It might sound like he's using the word well merely as a sort of weary pause filler, as though mulling over what to say next. In fact, our Canadian podcasting associates who recorded this interview as part of a collaboration tell us that at this moment he is actually standing on the site of Bob Whaler's now derelict garden center and pointing at a well. They didn't say which hand he was using to point at it. So that's where they found the body of the sheriff's deputy, just sort of stuffed down there. And Bob would use this well every day, getting water for all his seeds. He had this old bucket with the bottom dropping out. It's kind of a shitty bucket. He had to make so many trips. Yeah really dumb kid. So maybe Bob wasn't as good a garden center manager as Tildina Fark-Barkmerson claims. Why would a garden center be relying on getting water from one single well using one single bucket that was falling apart? I want to ask Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. these things, but I'm not there. I want my Canadian colleagues to ask him, but they seem to be cowards. It's incredibly frustrating. But what happens next in the podcast is crucial, both for the case and the order of the edit. I think at this point, Whaler is surprised. Pierre Tolbout Gagnon from the Quebec City Court Journal, which covered the case in the newspaper. You have this body of the deputy. It is uh, shoved into the well in Wales Garden Center. I mean, it does not look good for him or for the deputy. Would that be an unusual sight in that part of northern Maine? Yes, it is unusual. Uh, most of the time, sheriff's deputies are not found crammed into wells. What about in Canada? <laughs> No. There were reports that it might have been some kind of Quebec custom, since it's near the border. Uh, And you've got Sheriff John Brown, who's from there. Was it something lost in translation, maybe? (laughs) No. It is true that French Canadians have a number of, um, I suppose, local traditions that are very important. But I'm not aware of any that include throwing dead sheriff deputies down wells or any other vertical orifice. Pierre seems confident about this, so we move on up. So, the deputy sheriff is discovered in Whaler's well, and word starts to get out all around his hometown. Bob Whaler later claimed that people immediately started trying to track him down. 
This is hardly surprising, given that the body of a deputy sheriff had been discovered rammed down a well at his garden center and, at his trial, prosecutors blamed him for starting out of town, pointing out that if he hadn't done this, they wouldn't have had to track him down. Pierre Tolbooth gagged on again. He sounds French, but only a little bit. I think Mr. Whaler panicked. Uh, there was a dead sheriff's deputy on his property, and everyone knew that he was in the middle of this garden center dispute with Sheriff Jean Brun. John Brown. And his family. Could you say that it was a literal turf war? Yes, I suppose it was, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, could you say that it was a literal turf war? We can use it as a pullout quote in part three. Oh. Yeah, so, now, go. It was a literal turf war. A hokey soundbite from a disappointingly spineless Canadian reporter. It's worth taking stock of who and where people are altogether at this moment in the past. The sheriff's deputy had been found wedged into Bob Whaler's garden center well and seems dead. The sheriff, himself, Sheriff John Brown, who has always hated Whaler, is rushing to the town of Fort Roberts to bring him in or possibly shoot him down. It's too early to say. Whaler is about to start out of town, but has not yet shot the sheriff, primarily because he is currently several miles away from him, with buildings and trees and possibly a bear or raccoon in the way but there are loose ends that need to be tightened and unended before we can examine their confrontation in potentially lurid detail. For instance, Bob Whaler always maintained that he didn't shoot the deputy, but that doesn't necessarily mean he didn't kill him. Maybe he'd hit him very hard with his bucket, which could explain why the bottom was now falling out of it. Yet did he have any reason, any reason whatsoever, to kill the deputy? Or was Sheriff John Brown himself responsible for this? After all, witnesses say he had a track record of injuring deputies through terrible shooting. Maybe he'd gone one better, or one worse, and used his dead deputy as an opportunity to get rid of Bob Whaler and his seeds permanently, clearing the way for his family's rival garden center. After the break, we'll approach these questions inside part three. It will begin with a soundbite, and then I'll tell you who I am. Hi, this is Elanella Uli from National American Radio's Out of My Mouth, the program all about fine dining and cuisine on all sides of the Atlantic. I'll let you get back to your podcast in just a moment, but I'd love to tell you about my new podcast first. I hope that's okay. I'll be quick, I promise. It's called Grill This, question mark, Grill This, exclamation point, and it's a podcast all about cuisine and fine dining on all sides of the Atlantic. I'll be chatting to some of my favorite chefs, cooks, and kitchen experts about the recipes that inspired them to pursue the edible arts, what those arts taste like in today's fast-moving culinary climate, and their hopes and fears for the food future. Will it be a land of milk and honey, or a sandpit full of uncertain yogurt? In our first episode, I'm joined by South African food entrepreneur Hieronymus Klaab to discuss his latest cheeky Manhattan pop-up eatery. Here, as we say in the restaurant business, is a taster. Oh, 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 oh my God, man. I'm laughing so hard right now. <laughs> if that's whetted your appetite, I'd love to reserve you a table at Grill This. Grill This, the new podcast from NAR, National American Radio, with me, Elanella Uli. Available from your podcast provider or providers. Check, please. It was a literal turf war. I'm Mason Lane. This is Cold Case Crime Cuts. 20 years ago in the town of Fort Roberts in northern Maine, a mile from the Canadian border, Bob Whaler is about to be ambushed by Sheriff John Brown and his trusty side gun. 
Brown's deputy, has been found dead in a well at a garden center belonging to Whaler, and Whaler thinks that he will be blamed for this, even though he maintains he didn't shoot the deputy. Sensing his one chance at escape-based freedom, he starts out of town on foot. And it's here that the one witness to what happened next comes hurtling back into the podcast. Junior Jay Braithwaite Jr. made a 911 call after subsequent events had ended. And although he's slower and fatter than he was 20 years hence, he's not dead. So he is able to reminisce like this. Yeah, I was just out of here in my yard. Junior Jay Braithwaite Jr. is apparently standing in his yard. I'll have to take his word and that of our Canadian podcast associates at face value. And, uh, you know, there's a really clear line of sight in both directions, down into town. On his left. And toward the border. On his left. I'm out here and I see Bob Whaler walking up the hill. He seemed kind of preoccupied. Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. is wrong about this. Whaler is not preoccupied. He is entirely now occupied by walking, walking and thinking. And then suddenly the sheriff's car roars up and it happened, it happened so fast. At this point, I decide to paraphrase Junior J. Braithwaite Jr.'s recollections. I'm indoors and have a better microphone and better diction. According to Junior J. Braithwaite Jr., Sheriff John Brown leaps out of his car, brushes bits of well off his hands, and pulls out a gun, aiming to shoot Bob Whaler down. But Bob is faster, pulling a gun and shooting the sheriff instead. At the trial, Bob would claim that it was self-defense and that his reflexes got the better of him. It's a claim that has bothered me since it was first claimed. Dr. Stiltskin Karp is a consultant reflective neuroscientist living here in New York, but without a job. And something I would often explain to students uh, if I had them. You can no more disassociate yourself from your reflexes than you can from your voice or your hair or your watch. They are part of you. It is as simple as that. So far, so clear. But I asked Dr. Karp if this applies to garden center managers as well. Yes, absolutely. Garden center managers have the same relationship with their reflexes as the rest of us. The trial jury agreed with this assessment. After Whaler's claim that he acted in self-defense was torn apart by a pack of wild prosecutors. The whole approach from the defense team was flowed from the outset. This is Pierre Tolbooth Gagnon from Canada again, crawling back for more. Here is a guy who has confessed to shooting a sheriff, a law enforcement official. Claiming self-defense is not really going to change anything. So that was one mistake. Also, he was unable to explain why the deputy was found in his well which he admitted he used every day, and yet apparently he had not noticed the large, dead, uniformed man inside. Thirdly, and this was the biggest mistake, during the trial, which, remember, was primarily about whether he killed the deputy sheriff, he kept reminding everyone of the fact that, yes, he had indeed shot and killed the actual sheriff. It's not good to keep mentioning that in a courtroom. It was basically doing the prosecution's work for them. Like his bucket, Bob Whaler's defense held little water, and it sank quickly. But what of the deputy, the killed one? We know that he died, but how did he have what happened to him happen to him? With all this focus on the sheriff who got shot, the real other victim was forgotten. Eventually, a team of forensic investigators arrived to get the body out of the well. Pierre Tolbooth Gagnon, who has more to say than just that. And they brought all this sophisticated retrieval equipment with them, but they they didn't use it. I asked Pierre why on earth not. Why the fuck not? Well, you know, they were not sure exactly how sophisticated it was. 
Instead, the forensics team attempted to use Bob's old bucket with the bottom dropping out to lift the corpse out of the well. The bottom of the bucket dropped out completely, and so the deputy and the bucket fell all the way down into the water far below. It's a narrow well. There was no way to get him out. Also, nobody cared. He was still dead, but now he was dead 20 feet lower down. Bob Whaler always claimed that he didn't shoot the deputy. But it seems now that we'll never know if anyone shot him or if he died elsehow, such as from being in a well. But remember Tildina Fark-Farkmerson, the ex-deputy sheriff? It wouldn't surprise me at all if Sheriff Brown had killed his own deputy. He was trigger-happy and a terrible shot, so yeah, it's possible. And remember how I said that Junior J. Braithwaite Jr. said that he saw the sheriff brushing bits of well off his hands when he got out of his car? Well, he did say that, and so did I just minutes ago. Yet, it's a detail that went unnoticed at the trial, as the sheriff had been entirely shot by then, so he was unable to elaborate or explain himself. I did ask my Canadian podcast colleagues to stuff a dead body down the well to see if any residue from the well attached itself to their hands, but they declined to do so, as it was slippery underfoot. Bob Whaler was awarded two life sentences for the murders of Sheriff John Brown and his deputy. Shooting the sheriff was not a capital offense, despite what they said, Maine having abolished the death penalty in 1887, some years before either of the victims was old enough to be killed. I have my doubts that Bob Whaler shot the deputy, given that he had no reason to. But without looking at the body, it's impossible to do anything other than guess. One question lingers, though. Why was Bob harboring a known gun? We know that he did have one. How else could he have transferred a bullet into the sheriff from several yards away? But why did he did? He was just a garden center manager. Pierre Tolbooth Gagnon, one final time, hopefully. Ah, well, uh, the gardening gun, in fact, is kind of a local custom. In parts of Quebec and northern Maine, the soil can be quite firm, quite tough. So most gardeners, when they plant seeds, they prefer to shoot holes in the soil. It's quicker. And trowels can be dangerous. And Mr. Whaler, as he was planting a lot of seeds every day, probably hundreds, given how often Sheriff Jean Brun would kill them before they grew. So, uh, yes, he would certainly have carried his own small firearm with him around the garden center. John Brown. It's a tragedy that what begins as a simple dispute over garden center territories ended with two dead people and one perfectly alive one behind bars for the rest of his life. Did the bullying, vindictive sheriff deserve to be shot? I wouldn't want to be the judge of that, and I wasn't. A judge was, and he said he didn't. Did Bob Whaler act in self-defense? It doesn't matter. He shot a sheriff. Did the deputy deserve to be shot, if indeed he was? It's hard to say. We didn't find out his name or what he was like. 20 years on, this case still casts a shadow over the little town of Fort Roberts. But if I ever go there myself, and one day I hope I will be, I am determined to grow some seeds and plant some new evidence for future generations of deputies and sheriffs to find. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Denny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. The sub-optimization producers are AJ Alphabetti and Michael Sweats Donnelly. Peter Biltong responds spontaneously to each episode with a dramatic monologue. Look and listen hard at them at Cold Case Crime Cuts with one S but two T's. We're getting there. 
Original music by Jake Yap. Album art by Simon Fowler. Our engineers are Tony Turnside and Louis Blatherwick. The associate associate is Cliff Pathmanathan. Executive handling by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi, Cold Case Crime Guts is pounded firmly into shape at the studios of National American Radio at 10 Lala Plaza, New York City. And it is a very proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective and the UK's Soluble Radio. Catch Targeted Strike Plan on Chim Chimney Plus. Attrapez le plan de frapper ciblé sur Chim Chimney Plus. Hi, it's Mason Lane. Just to let you know, after we finished editing this episode of the podcast, we found out the name of the deputy. It was Ricky Prasinski, or something very similar. Non, absolument pas, c'était Ricky Pakowski.